Jonah is a unique book in the Old Testament. One of the, one of, in fact, it is the only book that really centers around and does not uh, really take into account anything regarding the nation of Israel, but is uh, centered around a Gentile nation. And um, what a unique uh, thing that God does here in the Old Testament, because uh, even as we studied last week, uh, and uh, or two weeks ago in the book of Amos, uh, how that God was bringing judgment on the Edomites, and it was uh, kind of focusing on the Edomites. There was some mention to how they treated Israel and uh, how God was going to bring Israel uh, back into the land and things like that. There were still some things that they dealt with Israel on. Jonah is the only book in the Old Testament that uh, literally focuses its entire attention on the Gentile nation. That is uh, the city of Nineveh, uh, and uh, Nineveh was an interesting city. It was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. If you remember the story uh, from the Old Testament, or you remember the, the, the teaching we've done on the Old Testament, that after Solomon, after King Solomon, uh, there was a division of the nation of Israel. Ten of the tribes went to what was called the Northern Kingdom, and they were known as Israel. And then you had two tribes to the south, and that was known as Judah. So you had the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom for several centuries, actually. There were some times where they kind of, kind of coordinated with each other, but there was always that division there. They never quite came together. The northern kingdom uh, was noted for having a lot of wicked kings. Because of the wickedness of their kings, they went into idolatry, began to worship false gods, and God brought judgment upon them. And uh, the way that he brought judgment upon them was to bring them in, into captivity under the Assyrian Empire. Uh, the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom a number of times and uh, held them uh, to tribute whenever they were uh, not attacking them and, and uh, actively at war with them. They held them under tribute and under pressure. The Assyrian kings were noted for their cruelty to their enemies. <coughs> and um, there are stories, historical accounts and stories of some of the atrocities that they uh, performed on some of their enemies and um, so one of the things I think that's interesting, I don't know that I had ever really thought of this before as I read the book of Jonah, uh, because we all know the story, don't we? God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and to preach to them. And rather than going to Nineveh, where does he go? He goes down to Joppa, right? And uh, he's going to try to uh, go as far away as he can from Nineveh. And uh, God raises up a storm and he raises up a fish. And we all know the story of the whale and uh, how the whale swallows Jonah. And oftentimes, I know growing up, as I thought of this, I just thought, well, Jonah just didn't want to do it. You know, he, he didn't want to go to that big city, and uh, he was a little scared. And I always thought of it as him just being nervous about some things. <clears throat> but there's a thought that I thought of as I, as I was studying a little bit of the background of Nineveh and uh, how it had oppressed the northern kingdom. I believe a lot of the uh, problem that Jonah had was uh, he was very patriotic, and he did not want to go to Nineveh simply because of the way Nineveh had treated Israel, because of their overbearing cruelty to the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. And uh, Jonah was born and served in that northern kingdom, and that's where his ministry was at. But I think a lot of times uh, we think that, well, Jonah was just backslidden, or he was just away from the Lord. Uh, and he was. There's no doubt he ran from the Lord. But there was... An underlying reason that I don't think we always think about, and that was the fact that he hated the Assyrians for what they had done to his people, to his, to his nation. 
And to put it in some modern wor words, it would be the same as God telling one of us to go to a nation that hates the United States of America and has done everything to oppress our country, and that we were to try to go and bring the gospel to them. How there would be a, a conflict, wouldn't there, to some degree? We would want to have compassion on the people. We would want to obey God as Christians. But there'd be a little bit of that hesitancy of, well, they've mistreated us so bad, why should I try to help them? And uh, so before we're too harsh on Jonah, I want us to realize that, but for the grace of God, any one of us could have made the same choice Jonah did. Uh, there was some legitimate reasons why he felt the way he felt. Now, he did make the wrong choice. We understand that from Scripture. But he certainly did not like uh, the, the, uh, the Assyrians nor their capital city. At the peak, the capital city <clears throat> had about 120,000 people in it. It's a pretty good-sized city. Uh, Size-wise, area-wise, it would take three days' journey just to walk around the perimeter of the city and its suburbs. And it took a full day from the time you entered into the gates to get to the center of the city, a full day of travel. And so uh, this is a very large city. This isn't just something very small that uh, we would think about, but a very, it's a very spread out, very large city. It was started, it was one of the oldest cities in the Old Testament. It was started by uh, Noah's great-grandson, Nimrod. Nimrod is the one who <coughs> rebelled against God and began to uh, uh, do some things with regards to the Tower of Babel and uh, some of those types of things that were going on. And so he was one of the ones that built uh, the city of Nineveh. And uh, so this is kind of... Uh, the, the nation as a whole that, that God told Jonah to go and see, the Assyrians. And um, there's a wonderful picture here that I think is given that we don't always see. And that is that even in the Old Testament, God had a concern not only for his own people, but also for the Gentiles. And uh, I'm thankful that we're, as Gentiles, the New Testament says that we've been grafted in, we've been able to be a part of God's plan and to be able to be redeemed. But God had that plan from the beginning of creation. God knew that the Gentiles were going to be a part of salvation. And uh, one of the other interesting things to note about the, the book of Jonah is everything in the book was obedient to Christ except for Jonah. Let me give you a list of those things that were obedient to God. The storm that came up was obedient, wasn't it? God rose up, raised up the stone, storm. The, the sailors cast lots, and the, the outcome of the lot casting was obedient to Christ. He was the one that controlled that. The sailors themselves were obedient, even though they were wicked and pagan and prayed to false gods. When Jonah told them what God demanded, they were obedient to God, weren't they? Think about this. The whale was obedient to God. Uh, the Ninevites, of all people, those that were being used, the pagan country that God was using to, to bring his people into judgment, even the Ninevites were obedient to God. Um, the plant that God raised up afterwards when Jonah was pouting over everything, uh, the plant was obedient to God. The worm that comes along and eats the plant was obedient to God. The east wind was obedient to God. And yet Jonah was not. He was the only one out of all the book that was disobedient to God, at least initially. The book is divided into two halves. There's four chapters in it. The first two is uh, deal with the first commission that God gives to, to Jonah. 
He tells them to go and preach to the city uh, Nineveh. And, of course, we know the results of that one. It is marked by disobedience and God's judgment upon him. And uh, then the second half of the book, uh, chapters 3 and 4, are the second time that God commissions him to go. And isn't it wonderful to see that the second one is marked by obedience and submission to God? I want us to learn a lesson from this. It is far better to be obedient and submissive to God the first time. But aren't we glad also that God is a God of second chances? God could have just given up on Jonah and used someone else. But He doesn't. He gives Jonah another chance to do it. And I'm so thankful that God is a God of second chances. Just because He is a God of second chances and because He can take something that was produced by our disobedience and turn it into something that glorifies Him does not give us the cause then to become disobedient so that He can be glorified. There are some people I've heard that have said, well, uh, I'm saved and God gives me eternal security. I know I'm on my way to heaven. I've trusted Christ as my Savior. So it doesn't matter how I live. I can live in sin. And God being a forgiving God, all i got to do is come back to Him and ask forgiveness and, uh, and He'll forgive me again. God does do that. He does forgive us. Over and over and over again He forgives us. But that does not give us license to go out and do these things. It does not give us the cause to say, well, I'm going to go out here and do this so that God can be glorified through it in the end. I'm thankful God can bring glory out of a bad situation. But we are not to go out and disobey God simply for the purpose of trying to get God to bring glory to the situation. There's a wonderful truth that is taught here, and that is that God is a long-suffering God. And God can use our failures, and He can use the broken pieces of our life to bring glory to Himself. But that is His choosing, and it should not be our purpose in disobedience. <clears throat> Jonah does not want to go to Nineveh because he does not want to see Nineveh spared. He's very angry at Nineveh for the fact that they've been very cruel to his country. And uh, during the second com uh, commission that God gives him in the last half of the book, uh, he, he preaches, uh, this is interesting, he preaches a one-sentence sermon. There are times that we would like our preachers to do that, wouldn't we? Uh, his one-sentence sermon, sermon is, uh, fast and repent, repent, uh, or God's going to bring judgment. And he gives them a one-sentence sermon. When you read about it, uh, it's one sentence long. And... Uh, I've, I've often preached on this, this passage or this book as the greatest evangelist that is given in Scripture was Jonah. He's the only man, uh, humanly speaking, that went and preached to a city and the entire city repented and turned to God. 120,000 from the king down, every single person in the city uh, repented and God spares Nineveh for an additional 150 years because of their repentance. Uh, what an amazing, merciful God there is. Because God was ready to destroy Nineveh, wasn't He? And He gives them, because of their repentance, their choosing to turn back to Him, another 150 years. God uses a simple lesson at the very end of it. Jonah sees the nation repent. He's sad because of it. He goes out and he pouts. He's mad that God is going to now spare Nineveh. He hated Nineveh. He, he hated them for what they had done to the nation of Israel. He did not want to see Nineveh spared. He wanted God's judgment to come upon them. And so he goes out and he pouts. 
And God teaches them a valuable lesson, and he uses such a simple, simple thing. He brings up a, a plant, a gourd, to come and give him shade. And then the worm comes along and eats it, and this thing shrivels up and dies. And uh, Jonah is sorrowful over the plant. And God showed him, he says, Jonah, he shows him, he says, he showed Jonah that he had more compassion on a plant than he did on the souls of men. What a horrible way to learn that lesson. To realize that sometimes there are things in our life that we have more compassion on than the soul of a man. And so God uses a very simple object lesson to teach Jonah a great lesson. You would think after all that Jonah had learned in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights that he would not have to be taught such things. But God teaches him the importance of the soul of a man. And how that as God's messengers, as God's preachers of the gospel, which in the New Testament every single one of us are responsible for, that as we're given that responsibility to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to others, we need to make sure that we do it with a heart of compassion for them, a love for them, a desire to reach them with the gospel. Jonah is uh, the author of the book. He uh, is the son of um, Amittai. It's found in chapter 1 and verse number 1. If it was not for one other fairly obscure reference in the Old Testament and then a recognition by Christ in the New Testament, that would really be about all that would be known of Jonah. There is a, a reference to Jonah in 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse number 25 that uh, indicates that he was a prophet under Jeroboam II uh, of Israel. Uh, he was from uh, Gath-Hefer. Uh, uh, Gath, uh, uh, three miles north of Nazareth in the lower Galilee area. This is important because in John, the Pharisees were telling uh, some folks and telling the Lord Jesus Christ that there was no prophet that had come uh, out of uh, Galilee, and uh, yet uh, Jonah was uh, from Galilee. He was from that area. And so they were wrong on that. Uh, the Pharisees were certainly mistaken in that. There is a tradition in the Jewish uh, people and uh, I say this only because we don't have scripture for it, but there is some tradition that has been passed down through the Jewish people. And the reason I say that is because there are a lot of the traditions that were passed down through the Jewish people that had historical value to them and uh, had uh, elements of truth to them, even though they may not have been found in scripture. And the tradition is that Jonah could have been, and I'm just throwing this out as the, what the Jews uh, teach as tradition, uh, not something we can find in Scripture, so don't take it as fact or absolute. But there is uh, the, the possibility that uh, Jonah was the son of the widow of Zarephath that Elijah raised from the dead. And that is a Jewish tradition regarding Jonah, uh, which is an interesting time. Um, oftentimes in the book, he refers to himself in the third person. Some uh, people try to say, well, Jonah wasn't the writer because it's always third person. But there were a lot of folks that wrote scripture uh, that often referred to themselves in the third person. John was one of those uh, people that oftentimes referred to himself in the third person uh, out of a sense of humility. 
And uh, Christ himself supports the accuracy of this book. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter number 12. Hold your place in Jonah. We're going to come back to it in just a minute. Well, let's look in Matthew chapter number 12 and verse number 39. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 12 and uh, verse number 39. We find that Christ likens himself... Uh, to Jonah. And so we see Christ is even pictured in the story of Jonah. And Christ himself in his earthly ministry refers back to this in chapter 12 of Matthew, verse number 39, the Bible says, But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall, be, shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And notice what he says here. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. Jesus speaking to the, to, to the multitudes and to the Pharisees and the scribes and those that were gathered around. He said, just like Jonas was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, he says the Son of Man is going to be in the heart of the earth uh, for three days and three nights. He said, that, but it's going to be more tolerable for those in Nineveh because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. He said, you've got someone greater than Jonah here, and yet you're not repenting. And the idea that they were not coming to Christ. And so we find that uh, Christ is easily pictured in the story of Jonah. Jonah is a contemporary of Jeroboam II, who was uh, ruler over the northern kingdom from about 782 to about 753 B.C. Um, and uh, he ministered uh, uh, shortly after the time of Elijah, but before the time of Amos and Hosea. So if you're reading through your Old Testament, the book of Jonah chronologically uh, comes before the time of Amos and Hosea, just so you'll be able to keep that in mind. Israel, uh, during this time, was enjoying a level of prosperity. God was expanding its borders under Jeroboam II, and uh, yet he had already begun to tell uh, the northern kingdom, listen, this is going to be short-lived if you continue your idolatrous ways. There were two things that were the downfall of the northern kingdom first, and then uh, a few hundred years, about a hundred or so years later, uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. And that was this. There was adultery that took place in the fact that they began to go and intermarry with some of the pagan people around them, the heathen people around them. And as a result of their adultery and their fornication with these other nations, they began to uh, commit idolatry. They brought in their false gods and began to worship other gods. Those two things often, as you look at the, the cycle of Israel, that they go through uh, a time of prosperity, they fall into idolatry and apathy, and then God brings judgment upon them. Then we find repentance and we find God's deliverance. And the cycle starts all over again. Uh, oftentimes it is because of those two things. Adultery being committed with the, the pagan countries around them. And idolatry as a result of that. Uh, We've got to be so careful. Because even though we don't have uh, pagan nations around us that we follow after, follow after and take in their, their stone idols and things. The truth is, as Christians, it is possible for us to fall away from the Lord. And the Bible refers to that as spiritual adultery, that we begin to think of other things that are more important than God. 
And as that appetite begins to get stronger and stronger in our flesh nature, we begin to become, uh, I hate to say it this way, but we become idolatrous to some things. There are things that we would love and hold to and give place as the most important part of our life that are not pertaining to the things of God. And as such, that becomes an idol to us. It becomes something that we're worshiping. It uh, becomes something that we're longing for more so uh, than the things of the Lord. And so we find this again pictured in the book of Jonah. Uh, Jonah's experience with the whale is the picture of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He very vividly teaches that. Look with me in uh, Jonah chapter number 2. We're going to look at a couple of key verses here and then we'll be done. <clears throat> a couple of key verses that are found in here. Jonah chapter number 2. And uh, let's look in verse number 8. Jonah chapter number 2, and let's look in verse number 8. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving, and will pay that I have vowed salvation is of the Lord. And what God is saying here in verse number 8 is, uh, you don't deserve the mercy but I'm a God of my word, and salvation is of the Lord. And very important that we understand there's not one person that's sitting here today that deserves God's mercy. Not one of us. There's not one of us sitting here today that deserves God's grace. But I'm thankful that God made a way for you and I to escape the penalty of our sin. We are the ones that chose our sinful life. We're the ones that, that deserve the penalty for that sin. That's not God's fault. That's our fault. I'm thankful God made a way for us to be redeemed from those things. Then look over with me in chapter number 4, if you will, in verse number 2. Chapter 4 and verse number 2. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness. And repentest thee of the evil. Even Jonah, in his disobedience, recognized the graciousness of God. Nineveh was a very wicked, wicked city. Led by men that were idolaters. Their pagan religions were vile. Their cruelty to their enemies was horrendous. Their offenses toward Israel were unspeakable. If any nation deserved, by the way, there were nations that did far less to Israel than Nineveh did. And God destroyed them. And yet God said, I'm going to show mercy. Boy, aren't we glad we have a merciful God? Aren't we glad we have a gracious God? One of great kindness and slow to anger. I'm thankful not only was He gracious to save me from my sin... But I'll tell you, I'm thankful that He is gracious to me daily when I fail Him every time. Every time that I fail Him, He is gracious. Every time I fail Him, He is merciful. He is long-suffering and He is kind. And I don't know about you, but boy, if, if that doesn't cause a Christian's heart to well with the love that we have for Him, to say, Lord, thank You for who You are, for Your mercy and Your grace to me. Uh, I don't know what could cause us to love Him any more than something like this. We find that He is very merciful. He takes a country and a nation 
here specifically the capital city of many, many souls. And he shows them mercy. He shows them kindness. He shows them long-suffering. And uh, wonderful, wonderful truths that we learn. The key chapter is chapter number 3. And as, God, as Jonah becomes obedient and God brings his hand of blessing upon him, he preaches a one-sentence one message. And the entire city repents and comes to God. Uh, boy, what a wonderful thing when God works in a very uh, apparent way to bring men to himself. You and I are simply an instrument. We are a vessel. We're a tool that God uses to accomplish his work. But don't make no mistake about it. He's the one that accomplishes the work. He's the one that causes the results in the transforming work in the hearts of men. Let's go ahead and stand together. We're going to be dismissed in prayer. We've got about 10 minutes till the service to come. Stay with us.